Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone, and welcome back to New Books and History, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben, and today my guest is Professor F.H. Buckley. Frank is a Foundation Professor at George Mason University's Scalia School of Law. He's a very prolific author, and today we're talking to him about his most recent book, American Secession, The Looming Threat of a National Breakup, just published by Encounter Books. Frank, congratulations on the book and welcome to the show. Crawford, thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's a delight to be with you. It's, it's a pleasure you to have, have you. You uh, invited me to give you a bit of a wee bio, and I'll do that right now. I am from Canada and became an American citizen only six years ago. I had moved here before. So I lived most of my life in Canada. I lived, grew up in a small French-Canadian village in Western Canada. I lived for many years in Montreal. I taught at McGill University. I became bilingual uh, as a consequence of my background. And I also became familiar with the idea of secession living in Quebec. We went through a couple of secession referenda. I was uh, on the side of uh, keeping the country together. But uh, the idea of secession was one that was strongly imprinted on my brain, even after I moved to the United States. And in the last couple of years, one see, has seen so many divisions in this country that you begin to wonder whether or not secession is a real possibility here. Um, I mean, I'm in the middle of it. I live here now in Alexandria, Virginia, across the river from the District of Columbia. Uh, in the American Constitution, there's a guarantee that states shall not be invaded, but my Alexandria, Virginia, was invaded by federal troops on May 24, 1861, which in southern terms is just yesterday. Um, and that was a shocking experience for people here. Um, and I also began to think, well, if we were divided then in 1861, we're just, it seems to me, as divided right now. And therefore, I began as a lawyer to look at whether or not there was a possibility legally of secession, and I concluded there was. I concluded that the Canadian experience offered a means of exit, as indeed did the British experience with respect to uh, the Republic of Ireland, of course, and 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 Scotland, right? So there there are these these movements, uh, and indeed it struck me that. And the more democratic a country is, the more likely it is to tolerate the possibility of secession. Right? The way things have worked out in, in, in Quebec uh, was really quite interesting. One, one began with violence. There were, some, there were kidnappings in Quebec in, eight, nine, in 1970, 50 years ago exactly. Uh, and all of that stopped when a separatist government was elected in the province of Quebec, and, and it became clear that secession was politically feasible. And, and that meant that the violence disappeared. So through democratic processes, the separatists found that they might achieve their goal without violence, and the violence stopped. And that was a, a good thing. The secession referendum, the two of them in Quebec, failed. One came very close to succeed, to succeeding, uh, succeeding. And, uh, and so it's a tribute to Canadian democracy and British democracy that it's willing to tolerate the possibility of a, of a breakup of the country, if, if that's indeed what people want. 
right? It was tried in Scotland and the secession movement failed. The de denial of the possibility of secession in this country is indeed a departure from democracy in some way. And I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. Uh, President Lincoln was correct in opposing secession in 1861 precisely because secession would have meant the continuation of slavery in, in, uh, in the South. Uh, he, of course, was willing to tolerate slavery to keep the country together, but when that wasn't possible, he put an end to slavery. The conditions now in America as to secession are very different. The stakes are lower. And what that means is that if a country, if a state would secede, any state, we wouldn't see a rollback of, uh, you know, civil rights laws in, in, in any one state, whatever the state might be. It's, it's just, it just wouldn't happen. And indeed, the liveliest secession movements are from the, the liberal states in America, places like California that has something called Calexit going, uh, which is California exiting from the union. Uh, and I'm, by the way, I'm, I'm God for those people. They, they, they love me, right? Um, and, and, and moreover, we have an election coming up in a month's time in America and game planning what might happen on a Trump victory. Uh, Democratic big time operative John Podesta raised the possibility of secession or the threat of secession. So it's very much on the table. And, and when I looked at how this might done constitute, be done constitutionally, I discovered, you know, it just might happen. And, and indeed, the Canadian experience gives one a roadmap as to how it might come about. I mean, if, you see, if, it's a very complicated matter, is secession. We've never had to really think it through. But the idea is that if, the st if a state, be it California or be it Scotland, held a referendum to secede, and if the legislature approved that in an act of secession, that wouldn't make California or Scotland independent. Rather, it would begin a process of negotiations because what would then be on the table would be a division of the spoils. I mean, it'd be, it'd be like a matrimonial divorce. One has to decide who gets what. So were California to secede, you'd start asking questions like, gosh, what about the U.S. fleet stationed in San Diego, California? Right. Um, and you have a similar problem, by the way, with the Royal Navy and its bases in Scotland. So, you know, there's that. And then as important is the division of the federal debt, right? So, um, you know, in, in, in Quebec, one recognized these problems. One got closer to a real secession and, and one knew that there'd have to be some basis upon which uh, the province that seceded would bear its proper share of the federal debt. Uh, you know, obviously a very complicated set of negotiations. There are a lot of ways in which one can cut that particular cake. So, so the, the, the there's no unilateral right of secession, right? There's, you know, it's, it's not like Ian Smith and Rhodesia. That, that, that doesn't work. Uh, indeed, it's not like 1776, which was a unilateral act of secession, which, uh, left 
Britain bearing the bag for the British national debt. No, no, you, you know, California would have to pay its fair share. And that's roughly the way the Canadian Supreme Court looked at it when it had to think about it. I mean, what it did was, what it said is, look, there's no unilateral right of secession, but a lot of things go into it. And at a minimum, you'd end up with a process of negotiations, right? What, what the court, what the Canadian Supreme Court said is, uh, people would have to sit down and bargain over these things. And a lot of things would enter into it. Uh, for example, um, to, it's, it's relevant whether or not the secession would have the effect of preserving or destroying civil rights in that region. Right, which is to say that secession in 1861 of the American South was for that reason improper, but a secession today of California wouldn't raise problems. Right? I mean, you know, you, you, you might want to secede if Trump wins and, uh, you know, and, and the federal government enacts some laws which are conservative on the subject of what, abortion and the like. And states would then want to perhaps go their own way. That's, that's the sort of thing that the Democrats are beginning to think about. So it, it, it would mean, uh, in either case, either were it Alabama seceding or California, it wouldn't really trench on civil rights. It would be a different kind of a question. It would then be a question about people who really disagree about a whole bunch of things about, about, uh, you know, about the culture and so on. Um, wanting to live in a country where people agreed with them more. Now that's, that's, that's a very reasonable sort of thing. Um, it was the way in which, which one can think of the, uh, essentially act of secession in the Republic of Ireland in the 1920s. Um, you know, people who, uh, though mixed, you know, nevertheless, predominantly had a very different view of the things that were thought to matter at the time. Uh, Quebec was like that with respect to language. Um, here it's culture. Uh, perhaps in a way, there's no escaping the, uh, the culture of today, wherever you live. Um, the Black Lives Matter uh, movement is powerful not only in America, but it's been exported to Europe for reasons which I don't quite understand. Black Lives Matter makes a hit in London. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, I should have thought that uh, Britain was more likely a model of how the races should get together than America. I'm, I, I'm thinking of the abolition of the slave trade. I'm thinking of the abolition of slavery. Uh, I, I'm thinking of judicial decisions which abolished slavery in England in 1772 or three. Um, you know, and so Britain doesn't bear the guilt that America bears over the issue, but, but, you know, but somehow the culture is such that the movement was exported to Britain. Uh, if there were secession, therefore, in America, you wouldn't be exiting from a national culture, a worldwide culture, one in which American liberals have, have exported their culture throughout the world. Uh, I mean, that, that, that's uh, an aspect of modernity that, that doesn't go away. 
Um, Frank, that's that's a very helpful overview of some of the principal themes of the book. Can I can I take you back now to the historical discussion that you begin the book with, and that's an historical discussion about the first attempt at secession, which you've alluded to already in the early eighteen sixties, a secession movement that obviously um, ends up at a civil war and is one of the most damaging conflicts, in fact, the most damaging conflict that American soldiers have ever fought in. Um, how did that secession movement fail and in what ways were the two Americas that resulted brought back together again? Well, that, that, fascinating questions. Um, one thing I found very surprising was the support for slavery in the North if it came down to a choice between keeping the country together versus abolition. Nobody was an abolitionist, really. Okay. Um, instead, the most prominent opponents of slavery, the Secretary of State William Seward and Abraham Lincoln proposed an amendment to the Constitution, which would guarantee slavery throughout the entire country. I mean, we, you know, um, uh, absolutely remarkable. So the offer to the South was, right, you want it, we don't like it. You get to keep it, just stay part of America. And that didn't work for the Southerners. And and the explanation I have is it became a psychological matter. In 1861, as in 2020, the divisions between the people and the want of respect for people of different opinions was so great that it simply couldn't be tolerated. That was on the table more than anything else in, in 1861. And the other thing that's interesting about all of this is the Southerners never thought, nobody thought there'd really be a secession. Yes, you know, there, there was South Carolina, but see, people in South Carolina were, were mad. I mean, someone said of South Carolina, too small for a country, too big for an insane asylum. But, you know, but that so apart from the crazies there, uh, it was thought it would all go away, which tells you about people who today say it could never happen. They, nobody thought it was going to happen in, you know, in, in early 1861. But but it did. These things have a life of their own. Once you get started, the depths of feeling, the sense of, the lack of respect quickly can become so overpowering as to shut out the possibility of, of union. And how were the two Americas brought back together again? You, you describe a process that I suppose stretches over three distinct phases, I think, in the book. If you look at American culture, movies, uh, for most of the 20th century, there's a great effort at bringing the country together, by which I mean the white Southerners and the white Northerners. There was a kind of grand compromise in which it was thought, um, you know, the South has its legitimate heroes in Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson, formidable, uh, you know, military enemies. It was permitted for Southerners to respect, to, to honor them, to honor the Confederate dead, to gather at the old, campground if you were a reenactor. Uh, and the, the point is the people who got left out of this were African Americans. 
right? I mean, by the 1960s and 70s and 80s, the compromise was beginning to work fairly well. Um, there was a PBS series on the Civil War, Ken Burns thing, that was so laudatory of the Southerners that Burns had to explain, no, 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 I'm glad the South lost. Um, and, you know, by that point, it was agreed by everyone, right, Southerners can respect Robert E. Lee and Southerners have to accept civil rights. That that was a compromise which one thought would work. And, and then it all fell apart. I mean, the statutes began to come down and we, one began to speak about systemic racism, about a sin that could never be expunged or absolved in America. Things became a lot more unpleasant. And, and that's where we are now. It's, it's, it's not a, it's not a happy country. It's a lonely country. It's a divided country. It's a country where almost anything could happen. It's also too big of a country. It's too damn big. Smaller countries are happier. We'll come to that thought in just a second, I hope. But for now, can I ask you just to, to return to the, the historical context you describe in the book? You describe the Constitution as a victor's constitution, a constitution designed for another country. What do you have in mind when you make the argument? In 1868, the Supreme Court held that, a very politicized Supreme Court held that uh, secession was politically impossible. Uh, it was illegal. It wasn't permitted under the Constitution. That was 1868. Um, during the Civil War, the Supreme Court uh, muffed the issue. It didn't, it didn't really take it up. In 1861, it was very possible for people in good faith to think that there was a right of secession. I mean, after all, uh, James Madison, the so-called father of the Constitution, thought there was a right of secession um, when he drafted the Constitution. Thomas Jefferson would have agreed with him. Most of the framers of the Constitution thought that secession was a possibility. In their convention, they considered the possibility of secession, and they thought, well, you know, yeah, that might happen. We could split into three different countries. That's all very possible. I mean, we, we need a deal to keep it all together. But if we don't get a deal, three countries, yes, that may very well happen. So, you know, so for, for much of American history, um, many people thought that secession was a real possibility. In that sense, you can't describe a person like President Jefferson Davis of the Confederacy as a traitor if he indeed was faithful to his understanding of the Constitution. Now, you mentioned earlier on that America in some senses is too big. Yeah. You also, you also discuss in the book what makes for a successful small country. How do you, how do you imagine that and, and what might make secession attractive now? Well, it, it, firstly, you know, I, I'm, at, I'm at Scalia Law School, which is a, a law and econ school. And so, of course, one does number crunching, one has one's statistical software. And I did all that and, and looked at big versus small countries in terms of things like freedom, wealth, and so on. And all the good stuff was associated with small countries. I mean, it's it's the Denmarks that do rather well on those kinds of ratings and not the Soviet unions or the Russias or the Chinas. 
And America is one of the biggest countries in the world, both in terms of geography and in terms of population. Population is really what matters. Um, and the problem with uh, an over big population is when people disagree about things, they're more likely to do so the bigger the country, right? I mean, you know, we have people in Alabama and we have people in California and, and uh, in many respects, they disagree about very fundamental things. So um, I think that makes for happier people in smaller countries. The other thing about a big country is the bigger the country, the further removed are the rulers from the people. You know, take, take a Denmark, for example, which is like kind of the, the perfect little state, the tiny perfect little state uh, where everybody bicycles. I mean, um, the, well, I forget the population is six, seven million people. Uh, the government has little difficulty in responding to the demands of the voters of the populace when the country is so small. But here in Washington, right, we're so far removed. I'm, I'm across the river from me. I can I can see the Capitol as I look out the window. Here in Washington, we're so far removed from people in Idaho or Alabama or or Portland, Oregon, that it's difficult to legislate for everybody. And yet we try to do so. I mean, the, the expansion of the federal government is, in many respects, the cause of the problem. Right. I mean. The expansion was absolutely necessary in terms of preserving civil rights, for example. But in other respects, um, take, for example, uh, abortion or same-sex marriage, the Supreme Court stepping in and deciding issues on the basis of this is what the whole country has to, you know, has to abide by. Uh, that's going to leave a lot of people feeling very much out of the cold. And, and, you know, and so we have, for example, in abortion, um, much the most liberal regime of any first world country. And people on, in, in conservative states don't care for that. That tends to rip apart the soul of a country. I mean, you know, I'm talking here about what it is which makes a nation. And what makes a nation is a common feeling about, you know, about where we want to get to generally. And also, as Ernest Renan said, it, it also means having a sense of a common history in which we can all take pride, right? A, a history in, in which we forget the ignoble things in our history. But of course, now in America, with you know Black Lives Matter and the 1619 Project of the New York Times, we're asked to remember only the worst aspects of American history, and and it tears apart the soul of a country. You have to begin to wonder why anyone would want to live in a country so ignominious as the United States, is that if that's what they think about it. I mean, you know, I find this ironic because, you know, I, I, I grew up in Canada, as I say, which is a country which invented anti-Americanism, right? I mean, we were there before anybody. I mean, the loyalists in 1783, you know, they arrived in places like Ontario, New Brunswick, and, and they said, <laughs> you know, one thing we do is we really hate the United States. They just, they, they expelled us, right? We're refugees, for God's sakes. So when I see American anti-American, uh, an American who's anti-American, I, I feel like Crocodile Dundee pulling out his big knife, you know, you know, you say that's a knife. This is a knife, right? Um, but Canadian anti-Americanism is not exactly the most pleasant aspect of Canada. 
and therefore it's 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 dismaying to see it even in a stronger form here. Well, can I ask you to turn from your expertise as a legal scholar and historian to prognosticate? So, to to, 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 to prognosticate, which, ah. which state do you think will be the first to secede? And will they be happier? And will those states they leave be happier too? Well, it's a mugs game, isn't it? I mean, I don't like making predictions because... I'm so often wrong. Um, It's not like we're Canada, loosely held together. Um, Quebecers decided to stay part of Canada, importantly for financial reasons. They called it profitable federalism, profitable union. Um, economically, those kinds of ties are less strong here. California could secede and in many respects emerge the winner. It could, for example, decide to spend vastly less money on the military than the United States does and, uh, and in the process pay for a national health scheme, which, you know, which, which would be a, very attractive to many people. I mean, I, you know, uh, national health makes sense to me, for example. And, you know, I, 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 most Americans think it would be a good idea. Um, so you're more likely to get your way um, and, and get to do the kinds of things you want. One, one of our problems in the States has, I think, been uh, a constitutional system of blockage where things don't get done, where we have gridlock, where people want things and they can't possibly happen because you have divided government. And that simply points to the superiority of a parliamentary regime such as one has in Britain and which Britain exported to Canada and the rest of the Commonwealth. I mean, you know, what happens here is laws get in, in, a, in a parliamentary system, you know, bad laws get passed, but then they get repealed. And here what happens is bad laws get passed and then they're turned into the laws of the Medes and the Persians. Frank, you've written a really wonderful book about American secession that opens up a whole new way of thinking about this. Um, Can I ask you what your next project is going to be? Well, right. uh, I have two things on the go. I have a book coming out in April on the subject of curiosity. Uh, it's, it's in a way a response to Jordan Peterson's 12 rules. Peterson wrote his book about how to survive in a dim and forbidding climate, which is kind of what you expect from a Canadian. And I thought I should want to write a book about how to get along and exploit the possibilities of, of happiness and pleasure in the more ebullient society I'm, I've encountered when I moved to the United States. So it's, you know, it, 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 you know, my heroes are people like Wittgenstein and Pascal and Albert Camus and, and you know, and the pre-Raphaelites. So I just got to read a, a lot of good stuff. And then I'm writing a, uh, my new my project right now is a book on progressive conservatism, which is mostly a Canadian invention. These are red Tories in Canada. And my argument is that there is a red Tory element in American politics and that it is indeed the secret code to American politics. You know, my great hero is Dwight Eisenhower, who was almost the last gentleman in American politics and um, certainly the last progressive conservative, the guy who united a sense of truly progressive policies with the love of his country. 
Well, they sound like wonderful projects, and maybe we can have you back on the show to talk about those when they come out. That would be wonderful. That would be great stuff. Listen, Frank, thank you for your time today. We appreciate you sharing your time, especially this busy week. Um, Thanks for coming on to the show to talk about this important new book, American Secession, The Looming Threat of a National Breakup, just published by Encounter Books, author F.H. Buckley. Thanks for your time and take care. Thank you, Crawford. Good stuff. And thank you to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and History, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.